So we, um, we began uh, last week um, uh, looking at Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, we've been spending the last number of uh, months, actually, looking at Paul's first letter and now um, wanting to go full circle with Paul's correspondence with the church in Thessalonica that we have uh, recorded for us. We're going to jump right into uh, this second letter. We began it last week as Paul began to boast about the church in Thessalonica to the surrounding churches in which he was in fellowship with. And he boasted about five things in the church in Thessalonica. He talked about their, their genuineness of faith, right? He talked about their, their growing faith. He talked about their love that was growing amongst one another. He talked about their steadfastness in the midst of, of hardship and difficult times. And then he rail rounded that part out by um, highlighting their, that they were proven worthy through their suffering. And this morning, um, we're going we're gonna to kind of pick right up where we left off. And so uh, if you've not been trekking with us through First Thessalonians and last week, uh, all of that's available for you online. You certainly could jump on and, and catch up with us. And, uh, but it's been an incredibly uh, encouraging and challenging and instructional book for us as we seek to live out uh, the life of Christ in the midst of uh, what is a... Uh, hostile environment, right? A hostile world in which we live. Um, and that's kind of what Paul was addressing to the church in Thessalonica. He's, he's seeking in both of those letters to, to encourage them because as they turned to faith and they, they came to Christ, they came under the, the hostility of the world around them. And so in the midst of that, uh, they are continuing to grow, continuing to pursue Christ, but I don't care how spiritual you are, after a while, when it seems like it's coming at you time after time after time, it gets wearying, right? It gets, it gets taxing on us. And, and so Paul is, is addressing this church and seeking to encourage them um, in their spiritual growth. And we're reminded that, that we saw last week that um, regardless of where hardship comes from, we recognize that it all comes or is allowed by God to be used for our sanctification, right? That nothing comes into our life arbitrarily. Nothing happens by, 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 uh, by accident, right? God truly works all things together for the good, for those who love God and, according, uh, and, uh, and are called according to his purposes. And so we see Paul is, is reminding them of that, and as we continue in our text, Paul informs them that, that though it may appear that those who are hurting the church and hurting them individually, while it may appear that they were getting away with it, God will always deal with those who hurt God's people. Right? We are not to take that task upon ourselves, but we are instead to leave it to God who will vindicate uh, the redeemed and he will indeed punish the wicked. And that was something we're going to see in our text this morning. Both of Paul's letters had the goal of encouraging them as they were enduring difficult times. And in both of those letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the way in which he will divert their attention from what they were going through to where they ought to be was to highlight some future end time events, something that ultimately God was doing in the midst of those times. In 1st Thessalonians, he encouraged them by pointing to the rapture of the church. 
We talked a lot about that in, as we were going through chapter four specifically, right? We read in Paul's words to them, he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul says, therefore, because of that, encourage one another with these words. Right? In other words, don't lose sight of the fact he's not, like not, he's not making light of what they're going through, but in light of what is to come. He's, he is focusing their attention that at any moment, Christ can come for his church. Now in the second letter, he addresses them, only written um, probably a couple of months after the first one, he will direct their attention not to the rapture of the church where Christ will come for his church, but now to the second coming where Christ will return with his church and those who had been raptured from, uh, in, in, from, uh, during the raptural, rapture period. And he will encourage them by pointing out that justice of God on the unrighteous as well as the righteous. He will let them know that, listen, don't think for one second, as you're focusing on Jesus, as you're moving forward, don't think that God's not aware of what you're going through. Justice is going to come. It's going to come on both the unrighteous and it's also going to come upon the, the, the righteous. Now, when we hear the word justice, we think it's like God's punishment, but no, it's God giving what is rightly deserved. And so as we look at the, the justice of God this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week um, in chapter one in verse six. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn together there. First, second Thessalonians chapter one in verse six, Paul says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Let's just stop there for a moment. Look, look what he says there. People don't wanna think of a God like this, right? Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and here's something else that God considers just, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that justice is coming not through people, but from God himself. And speaking of those who inflicted wrath on the church and, on, and, and, and were against God, it says in verse nine, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There are two audiences in this section of scripture we're looking at that Paul will address in this, in this area, in this section. He's addressing those who were afflicted and he's addressing those who are unleashing the affliction, right? Those who were bullying and those who were being bullied. He's addressing those who were afflicted, the, the unrighteous who were, affliction, who were afflicting hardship on the righteous. And he's addressing the righteous who God will vindicate. The first one I want to talk, uh, talk about is, is this group that, that Paul identifies in verse six as those who afflict you. 
those who afflict you. Paul gives two characteristics about this group of people that we would do well to take note of. Here's how we know about, this is what we know about these, those who were afflicting them. Number one is that they don't know God. That they don't know God. This is referring to those who, who do not have a personal relationship with God. They may know about God, but they have not come into saving faith. They have not come into the saving knowledge of who God is. And they've not embraced Jesus for themselves. They don't know God intimately, personally. They may know about him, but they don't know him personally. I know a lot of people in our world today who think they know God, they know about God, but they don't know him. And what we see about this audience of people is that they don't know God. This is not an indictment of their unawareness, but instead of willful ignorance and defiance against God. Man created in the image of God has an inner conscience that knows there's a creator, that knows there's a God. There's something built into everyone who's made in the image of God that rises up within them that lets them know that there's something bigger than them, more powerful than them, a designer who created all that which is designed. That's why I don't believe in atheists. Because there's something on the inside that they know deep in their knower they will not share it or claim it to anybody else. But they know, that's why they're so defiant because there's something on the inside that cries out, made in the image of God. Paul will address this in Romans chapter one. He says this in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Look, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Notice what Paul says here. He says, they suppress the truth. They push it down. Do you ever go on the beach or in a pool and you get that, 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 ball, that beach ball, right? And you kind of hold it underwater as best you can, but you can't hold it up. It wants to come to the surface, right? You suppress it, you push it down. But the moment you let go of it, it wants to pop its, bed, its head back up again. Truth is like that. You can't suppress truth. It's going to constantly reveal itself as true. And what Paul says here, he says, these, who, these unrighteous, what they do is they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look, because what may be, may be made known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Look, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What Paul is writing about is the fact that as man looks at God's creation, as he sees God's design, as they start to think about the wiring of humanity, the intricacies of the universe, the intricacies of our, of our physical bodies, we look at the design in which God has created all things. Creation screams that there's a designer. And man suppresses that truth. Why? Because if there's a designer, then we're accountable to it. And man does not want to be under the accountable hand of God. And so they suppress the truth. Even though all of creation screams there's a designer. And what Paul says, therefore they are without excuse. Paul identifies this group of people as they, they don't know God. 
Another characteristic of this group is they don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. They don't know God and they don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel means good news. Well, we can't understand the good news until we understand the bad news, right? That man is a sinner. He's born in sin and therefore in need of a savior. Man is born under the wrath of God. Born in Adam, that sin nature passed on down to every human being. It's called original sin. Therefore, man is born under the wrath of God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. The gospel of Jesus Christ, embracing the work of Jesus Christ as our only means of salvation is the only way man will ever come into reconciling, into a reconciled relationship with the creator of our souls. And they don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. This group rejects it, they, they disobey it. Is this group that Paul is addressing in these opening passages. So look at the destination of this group who don't know God and don't obey God. God has got something to say about this group of people who don't know God and don't obey God. It says in verse seven, and when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those are some hard words. This is an aspect of Jesus that nobody wants to believe exists in our politically correct environment today. Most people's version of God is just basically a little bit more of a moral expression of themselves. But there is a side to God that, is, that you cannot divorce from his character, from his character and that is that, that wrathful side, that vengeance side that must and will punish wrath because he's a just God. Jesus that enacts vengeance and, and wrath is not a Jesus of the world today, right? This is where people usually check out and assume, well, the church is being very judgmental, certainly not very unloving. What a, what, a, what a bad news message they have to say. But the reality is that the wrath of God, the, the vengeance of God is just as much a part of God's character as his love and his mercy. And we can't pick and choose what parts of God we want to celebrate. In fact, it's his love and his mercy that protects us from his wrath. But it is only offered through his son. When we talk about being saved, right? How many are saved this morning? Say, thank God, I'm saved. Well, what are we being saved from? We're being saved from the wrath of God. I mean, yes, we're being saved from the consequences of sin. Yes, we're being saved from, from uh, uh, all these other things. But ultimately, what we are being saved from is the wrath of God. John writes, he that has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son shall not see life. And the wrath of God abides upon him. 
And so we need to understand, if we want to embrace and fully understand the good news of the gospel, if we want to appreciate what Christ has truly done for us, then we must understand what our predicament was apart from Christ. And he says that they will, look at verse 9, it says look, they, they will suffer, look, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You say, well, that's quite a message to come to church. I got, I got dressed to come to church. Do you hear that? I didn't write it. Jesus wrote it, right? This is the truth of God's word. And, and if we want to be equipped as, as good soldiers in Christ's army, we need to know the whole truth, not just the palatable stuff, right? What about this audience of people who do not know God? What about this audience of people who reject God? He says in verse nine, they will suffer the punishment, look, of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul defines the affliction that, that the obedient will receive, he defines it as eternal destruction. In other words, it's not going to be just a, a slap on the wrist and, hey, go try harder or, or something that eventually God will get over and, and let you get away with. His, his justice will not allow for that. This is serious stuff that we need to consider when we read through the, the, the passage, these passages of Scripture. For there wasn't the one who doesn't know God and obey God, eternal destruction is their destination. Ascribing the word eternal to destruction suggests that it will never have an end. Our minds are not capable of fully wrapping our, our understanding around this idea of eternity. This idea of forever, we are so, we are created in time and we operate in time and we consider everything in the context of time, but, but this is something that is over time and this idea of forever is impossibly able to be grasped by our limited thinking. And yet, this eternal destruction that Paul makes reference to will have no end. The word eternal in the Greek is the same word that is ascribed to God's character, God's nature, God being eternal. We, 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 we would ascribe that to the Holy Spirit. We would ascribe that to God the Son. We would ascribe that to God the Father. We see that that same word is ascribed to things like heaven and salvation and redemption and heaven and hell. And most frequently we see it used, used uh, connected to eternal life. And so the idea is that destruction has no end. John MacArthur points out in his commentary that this Greek word for destruction, listen, doesn't refer to annihilation, but to ruination. It does not mean the cessation of existence. And that's becoming a very popular, by the way, false doctrine today, annihilationism that those who embrace Christ will go on to eternity in heaven, but eventually, but those who reject him will eventually maybe suffer for a little while, but then cease to exist. There's nothing in the scripture other than a twisted passage in Ecclesiastes that the Jehovah Witnesses use. There's nothing to suggest annihilationism. 
And so MacArthur points out here is that this doesn't refer, this idea of destruction doesn't refer to annihilation, is, to an, a line, excuse me, annihilation, but to ruination. It does not mean the cessation of existence, but the loss of all that makes existence worthwhile. The lost will not cease to exist, but will experience forever a life of uselessness, hopelessness, emptiness, meaninglessness, with no value, with no worth, accomplishment, purpose, goal, or hope. They will be ruined forever. There's a hell to avoid. Leon Morris in his commentary on this text says, they, speaking of those who don't know God or reject God, he says, they pass into a night on which no morning dawns. This concept of eternal destruction ought to create in each and every one of us, those who have embraced Christ, a tremendous love and appreciation for what Christ has done for us and what he has saved us from. Because ultimately what those gentlemen have, have defined is what the wrath of God looks like. But in addition to that, it ought to mobilize the saint of God to get out into the highways and by byways and bring the good news of hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Because that is the destination of everyone who rejects Christ. How can this be possible? What kind of a location can that be? It is a place, as we see in verse 9, that Paul says, it is away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This place is away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It is hell. A place that Jesus spoke about 25 more times than he spoke about heaven as he preached over the course of those three years. A place that Jesus said the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. It is a real place. It is a place to avoid. And Christ came so that we can avoid eternal separation from God. This is the destiny of those who don't know God. This was your destiny before you embraced Christ. When was the last time you thanked him for that? Paul is not only reminding them of the destiny of those who inflicted such harm to them, but even more, he's reminding and encouraging them that no matter what is going on around them, that is not the destiny of the redeemed. What we, as we looked at last week, what we're going through right now is temporary, right? This thing called time is only gonna exist for a short period, but there's gonna be a point where time is no more and we're gonna step into eternity and all those things that, that bring us down here on this earth are gonna be forgotten about as we look into the face of him who's altogether lovely and we spend eternity with him. And so Paul is, is highlighting to them, obviously he's letting them know this is, the, this is what's headed for those who do not believe God or know God, but he's also encouraging them, saying, listen, don't forget, that's what you were and that's not what you are anymore. 
It's an encouragement to the redeemed, which is the second audience that Paul is addressing in this text. His justice toward the redeemed. Those who not only were on the receiving end of this letter, but all believers before them, with them, and after them, who find themselves under the hostile treatment of others because of their faith in God. No matter what you're going through, don't lose sight of the fact that it's not going to be forever. Again, the church in Thessalonica was going through persecution for their, for their faith in Christ for going against the flow of their culture, for no longer participating in the the sinful practices of their culture, the pagan practices and idolatry of the day. As a result of that, they they were being persecuted. In fact, so much so that some of them began to believe the lie that they were walking or in the midst of the tribulation period, which Paul addresses. You know, as we observe the the rising sin in our our own culture today. And we consider the the embracing of of sinful practices and and sinful lifestyles the scripture clearly condemns. The church is becoming more and more of a target of our culture's hatred. Have you noticed that? Why? Because they are suppressing the truth. And as Christians, we are to shine light on the truth. The more you hold up truth, the more haters of truth will despise you. That shouldn't catch us by surprise. Jesus said, hey, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you also. But be encouraged. He said, I've overcome the world, and so will you, right? He's encouraging those that were there, as well as all throughout history, that have been under the under persecution for their faith. You know, the church has experienced more persecution in the last 100 years than it has in the last 1,900 years. Thankfully, we have not experienced the magnitude of persecution here in America that our brothers and sisters around the world to this very day experience. We must never lose sight of the fact that our brothers and sisters are being persecuted for their faith in ways that I pray to God none of us have to experience. We need to pray for the persecuted church in the world today. But to them and others like them, I find these words all the more encouraging that no matter what they're going through, that will not affect their eternity. Paul directs their attention to that day when Christ will return with his church. And we see three things that Paul points the church to at Christ's second coming that I want to highlight to you this morning. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, number one, God will deal with your enemies. God will deal with your enemies. He may not do it when you want him to do it. He may not do it the way in which you want to do it. You want him to do it. But God being the perfect judge will at the right time and in the right way avenge his people. Could you imagine if God answered the prayer, I'm sure, of some Christians who wanted God to just destroy this, this, this persecutor of the church named Saul of Tarsus? Imagine God granted their request their way. 
God had a much better way, right? And so what do we do? We leave to God to deal with those who are coming against us. That's what he says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. So what do we do with that? We, we let that pain become a tool of sanctification in our lives. We let that which is happening to us on the outside kill us, if you will, or kill that flesh in us that doesn't look like Christ. And we use that as a tool to become more Christ-like, more, Christ more broken, more humble, more dependent upon him. Paul points out that not only will God, would God, will God deal with those who afflict you, but number two, God will grant relief to you. God will deal with those who afflict you. That's justice. And likewise, justice will be served by God granting relief to you. We see that in verse seven, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. This Greek word for relief expresses the idea of, of relaxation, of, of loosening, of, of easing, of freedom, of restoration, of rest. Who can use some of that in these days in which we live? The scripture speaks of three different kinds of rest to believers. There's, there's the rest that, that comes from salvation in Christ. We, can, we stop striving with our works and we put our faith in Christ and there's rest that comes, that assurance that comes that no matter what, nothing will take me out of his hands. And there's a rest, a peace that rises above the circumstances. The scripture talks about a millennial rest, right? Which, which will follow the, follow the second coming when, when, when the church comes back with Christ on the earth for the thousand years and we rule and reign with him. It'll be a season of rest for the church. And then there's the eternal rest, right? Where after that millennial period is over and Satan and the false prophet and the antichrist and, and, and all the fallen angels and all of those who, who've rejected Christ will be kicked into the lake of fire and they will forever be off the scene and a new heaven and a new earth void of sin and the consequences thereof and everything will be as it was intended to be in the presence of the Lord and we will enter into eternal rest void of the sin and the consequences of the sin around us. You say, wait a minute. That sounds like I've got to wait a really long time for God to avenge me. Possibly. but our focus should not be on revenge. Our focus should not be on what they are doing to us. The child of God must be focusing on what God is doing in us. You see, in, 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 our, in our culture today, in our world today, in our, in our mindset today, we fail to recognize, we fail to remember that we were created for eternity. And we, we, sometimes we get so consumed with the temporary and the right now and what in, is inconveniencing me here and what I want and what I need. We fail to realize that we were created for eternity. And this thing called life that we're experiencing is but a vapor, as James says, here today and gone tomorrow. 
We need to have a more eternal perspective of what is ahead for us. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We see the third thing here that Paul's encouraging them with is that Jesus will be glorified in his saints. Jesus will be glorified in his saints. Listen, you and, ex- you and I exist to bring glory to God. Right? We are not at the center of our salvation. We are not at the center of the universe. He, it is all about Christ. He is central to all things. We exist for the glory of God. And we see here that Jesus will be glorified in his, in his saints. When? On that day. You see, something unique is going to happen that day. There's a connection that Paul is making in this passage. Unlike any other time in history, Jesus will be glorified in his saints. Something about this people, something about his people is going to change on that day. We're not in that day yet. He's not come. But on that day, something is going to happen. His people are going to change and bring glory to him unlike any other time before. Philippians chapter three, verse 21, Paul says this, Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's going to transform us on that day. Something's gonna be different on that day. John writes this in his first epistle, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, how many are curious what we're gonna be, right? What we will be has not yet appeared. Say, what are we gonna be? We don't know. He hasn't revealed that yet. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I love that. We will see, we will, we, when he appears, we will be like him. Not that we're gonna be like him in, in his deity. We will always be creation that brings glory and, and honor to our creator, right? We are never gonna become God. But we were gonna walk in the way in which God designed us. He made us in his image. We don't know on this side of eternity what that's going to look like. But when he appears, we shall be like him. Look, because we shall see him as he is. We, we, we don't, we, right, James says right now we see like, like through a mirror dimly. But when we, see, when, we see, when we see him, we shall see him as he, as he is. I don't care how deep of a dive you've got into who Jesus is through the passages of scripture. There is still yet to remain an unveiling of who he is. I think it's 1 Corinthians where Paul will, will write, when we, see him, we'll be li- when we see him, we'll be like him and we'll know him even as we are known by him. How well does God know you? We will know him even as we are known by him. 
I, I don't know what this new glorified body is going to look like, but it's not going to look anything like we are experiencing on this side of eternity without limitations at all. Unlike any other time in history, we will stand complete as pure vessels on that day where the glory of God will shine through us and back to God where all the glory belongs, right? Man will never hold the glory of God, no. We will reflect the glory of God back to God himself to where it all belongs. Look at the contrast between verses nine and 10. You can't miss this. The contrast between those who don't know God and those who do know God. Those who have rejected the gospel and those who have embraced the gospel. It says for those who, who have rejected or don't know God, they are away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They are away from God. Listen, we were created to be in the presence of the Lord, right? I'm going away, Jesus said, to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's God's plan and purpose that you and I will spend eternity with him forever. And he's provided the means through the work of Christ on the cross so that can happen. But notice the contrast here. Look, we, they, they, those who reject him, they are away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now look at verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, we won't be away from his presence. We will be so close to him. It was like we will be in him. Wow. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his his saints and looked and to be marveled at to be marveled at among all who have believed it's no wonder Paul says the fourth thing that we will marvel over Jesus on that day with all the redeemed get your most uh, uh, creative juices flowing as to what that might be and you can't scratch the surface of what God has in store for those who embrace him. Paul is pointing out to that day following the rapture of the church and the tribulation right at the second coming of Christ where all the redeemed are going to marvel. They're going to be blown away by the glory of God and of the Lamb. I think we get a sneak peek into that scene in the book of Revelation. It's at that moment, let me just give you some timing of this event. We were in Revelation chapter 19, and at this point, the, 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 um, it, it, is the, it, is, it is nearing the very end of the tribulation period. The, the, the raptured church is in the presence of the Lord, and, and, Paul, and John is on the island of Patmos, and he is, he is seeing the, the events of what is about to take place as the end comes near. And as he, as he begins to pen that which he sees, we pick up in Revelation chapter 19 and we see the timing of this event is also running parallel with the event that Paul is making reference to in 2 Thessalonians in our text today. He says this in verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, 
Salvation and the glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. He's talking about the tribulation period. Once, once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then he says, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then John writes, he says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's at that table? It's all the saints that have embraced Christ. All those who have raptured, been raptured in the church, they are at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then he says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Worship, worship who? Worship the angel. That's not good. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. He says, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then we see in verse 11, it says, and then I saw heaven opened. Every time we see those, 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 um, um, those bridges, we, we see different scenes. It's different scenes of, of what's being seen in heaven. He says, then, and now we, so we see the churches there, they're, they're crying out hallelujah, they're, 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 they're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we see, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's the church, folks. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul is encouraging the church this church that was discouraged, this church that was being under, the, 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 under, under the, the, the heat of persecution, that God has a plan and it's bigger than anything that was in front of them. God is just. He will reward faith, he will reward faith and obedience as we see and he will, and he will punish unbelief and unbelief and, un and disobedience. And if we have not shored our place in eternity, 
If we have not recognized our need to be forgiven of our sins and height, height, to, to hold tightly to the Lord Jesus Christ as our only means of salvation, then today is the day of salvation. There is a hell to avoid and a heaven to gain. It's been secured by Christ's blood. Paul wraps up this section by verbalizing his prayer for the church. And we see this in his closing verses of of chapter two, oh, chapter one. He says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture of what Paul presents before us. It's there again, that Jesus may be glorified in you. That Jesus may be glorified in you. And that's exactly what happens as Paul pointed them back to the throne where the redeemed will cry out, holy, holy, holy. Where the angels will cry out, holy. Where all of creation will cry out, holy. And forever and ever worship the Lamb. For he is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all glory and honor. This morning we want to take a time and respond to that to worship him who is worthy of all of our praise so I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you can this morning and let's go back into a time of responding to the awesomeness of our God as we worship the lamb upon the throne